And we're especially focused on a phrase in verse 17 when it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. And then Christ's explanation of that, that whatever Peter, James, and John, these apostles, whatever they bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever they loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now we're hopefully coming towards the close of our consideration of Matthew 18, and it's taken uh, some time, um, because some of the issues involved here are a little bit complicated, and they just take time for us to think them through. That's really the case because Almost out of the blue here, Christ says, tell it to the church. And that's not a word he would usually use. Um, there are other words for God's people in the Old Testament and in the Gospels up until this point. You know that. The assembly or the people of God or my nation Israel. We just sang one, actually, where it says that God dwells there and he loves Jacob. Now, that's a reference to the church. It's not just Jacob, the person that God loved, but when we sang there uh, in Psalm 47, and it says that God loves Jacob, it's really saying that God loves the church. Because all the children of Jacob, there were 12 of them, and the church came from them, and the church was often called Israel or Jacob. But Christ then uses the word church here, and we've been trying to understand uh, what uh, this means. Um, We've seen uh, that I'm really continuing on last week's sermon. This is a part one and part two. So we're not really beginning anything here. We just saw that there's an increased degree here of seriousness in how sin is to be dealt with between Christians and the church. The first one was private and interpersonal between two people. If that doesn't work and there's no repentance, the Lord says bring two or three with you to speak to the person. And I, I can't go over the ground again. Make sure it actually is a sin. I, I keep saying that. Um, that's the only reason you should ever go with this to someone else. If they've actually sinned, you shouldn't accuse someone of sin if they're not sinning. So make sure that it's a sin. And um, it increases in degree because the person hasn't repented. And we saw that repentance is not just acknowledging something or saying sorry for it, but it really is a contrite heart, someone who's pierced, someone who is uh, penitent for that sin, some, someone that is grieved when they realize what they've done. And then once they see it, they turn away from it, endeavoring not to do it again. That's what, that's what biblical repentance is. It literally means to change, to change your mind. If you're wondering, oh, the word repentance is a strange word that we don't use anymore. It, it literally means to change your mind or to turn around. That's what it means. So, it's great and wonderful when I do that or you do that, when someone comes to us, if we actually just, we acknowledge it, we're contrite for it, and we turn from it. If that doesn't work, then Christ gives wise instructions here for how to deal with it. And you're to bring two or three with you, and we saw that that's wise. It's good if there are witnesses sometimes. And there's a lot of he said, she said. We've just seen that in the Supreme Court. There are no witnesses to the case with Judge Kavanaugh, and it just causes mayhem, because there weren't two or three 
there to, to witness it or to witness what was said and done. In the church, that shouldn't happen. Um, if you go to someone and something has clearly happened, um, take two or three with you and there's a discussion and everyone is in brotherly love with each other. We shouldn't be Republican and Democrat fighting each other in the church. We're one family and we should all want the same thing. So that's Christ's wise instruction for how to deal with it. But then he says, if that doesn't work, and sometimes it doesn't, my friends, if that doesn't work, he says, tell, tell the church. And we just saw that the church is God's people. It is God's assembly. The word means to call out. That's what the word here, ecclesia, means, to call out of the world. To call people out of the world into a Christian assembly. They are set apart from the world. They are holy unto the Lord. They are anointed by God and set apart as a special people that now live for him and live according to his word. They are not like the world. The world is there in its mass and the church has been separated and sanctified to the other side and they are now under God. They are an assembly which we call the ecclesia or the church. And we saw that God built that church according to certain rules, with, with doctrine and truth, with a government over it, uh, with discipline, and with worship. And the church is, a true church is governed according to these principles. They, they preach the truth of the Bible, they worship God according to the Bible, they govern the church according to the Bible, and they maintain a level of holiness in themselves and the membership that God requires of us, so that the world will see we are different. You can't have lots of affairs and all these things going on in a church. That's what happens in the world. If it happens in the church, it has to be dealt with quickly, because we are to live according to a certain level before God. And so we saw that, that the church is built on those things, and we saw especially that when he says, tell it to the church, he's really pointing out that one thing about the government out of those four. The doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. He's focusing on the government here. That the church has a government. That's what Jesus says. And the government at this point is going to be his apostles. But he has established that government, and that government uh, rules over the church. Not in a proud way, not in a, in a tyrannical way or anything like that. It's done according to Christ. It's done for Christ, and it's done with humility and with the knowledge that those who govern are sinners themselves. But it has to be done, or there would be disorder. And they, there is a real power that's invested in the collective eldership of the true church. That's, there's a real authority and power. That's very countercultural, and I'll mention that towards the end of the sermon, but that is so countercultural to you. The idea that you would become a member of an organization and that, that that organization is governed and it's done in Christ and it's done in love but the authority that that government has over you is very real. There's a lot of rebellion against government today. You choose to join an organization as well and then you can leave it whenever you want and there's this idea of the, the autonomy of self and the sovereignty of self. Um, Elements of that are very strong in the American Constitution, that there, there are certain inalienable rights that we're endowed with by the fact that God created us. But that doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. We are to be governed. All of us are. Children are governed by their parents. 
Employees are governed by their bosses. Children are governed by teachers in school. Senators govern over certain areas of people. The police govern over the model uh, law and the way it's carried out in a town or city. And it's true in the church too. Christ points out this government, but he says the church, its authority and its power is a moral one. It's, it's not a physical one. It's not like the civil government or the police or the army. And I, I said to you that the church can't arrest people, it can't grab people, it, it can't, the church can't pull you in forcibly, physically, and say, we want to see you about this. If, if you say, I'm not coming to see you about that, then the church has to accept that and deal with it accordingly. But the church can't go to people's houses and force certain things on them. But it does have a moral power. And I'm going to explain this in the sermon, but it does have a moral power. So there you have it. That's what the church is. That's how it is to be governed. And Christ has set it up that way. And it has a moral authority. And we just said our first point last week, really, and that first point was church discipline. That that discipline is done by those uh, overseers. And it's done for the glory of God. It's done for the good of his people. And it's done because it's a mark of the church. It's a mark of true Christianity. If there's a church that has no level of discipline, no level of a moral standard that we have to live by, it becomes less than a church and sometimes not a church at all. Because when we come to Christ, we come under Christ's word and law. And we said last time that it's even a mark of being a Christian that you're under that. In Hebrews 12, uh, the apostle says that if do not, do not um, be discouraged if you are chastened by the Lord. Do not be discouraged. For those whom the Lord loves, he corrects. And it is a mark that you are a son because your father teaches and corrects you. He says if you're not being taught or corrected, you are not sons. You are not sons. So if you have no correction in your life from God at all, you are not a son. We have that. You, you don't usually correct other people's uh, children or go around trying to correct them. They're not your children. That's the same with God. If, we're not be, if we have no sense at all that God is in our hearts and that he's correcting things and changing us, we should be concerned. Because those whom the Lord loves, he corrects. It's a mark of love. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. But it's part of love. Many parts of love are uncomfortable. So, it's a mark of Christianity. It's, a, it's for the glory of God and it's for the good of his church. To keep his church pure as is reasonable as we can be in this world. There is a level of purity. So, We've established that when crisis, that's all from one word, by the way. Crisis, you're telling to the church. But I need to explain all of that to you. That is the church. That is how it's governed. And this is why it disciplines. So the first point from last week was the church's discipline. I want to see uh, with you uh, now just two points, uh, quite briefly, uh, as part of last week's message. We've had the church's discipline, and now we'll see the church's authority and the church's promise. And that comes from our verses here, that the church 
has authority. The governors of the church have authority solemnly that God has given to them. And Christ points that out immediately. He says if, if a person is living in sin and he, he doesn't listen to the church, verse 17, let him be to you like a Gentile or tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, Concern, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. He's speaking there about authority. These um, apostles have the authority to loose things and to bind things. And in the ancient world that Jesus lived, the way things were taught, that was a common expression. That if you bind something, if you have authority, you can you can bind something on someone. So your employer has that over you. Your employer can say, I want you to be here at 9 a.m. every day. And they bind that on you. You're bound by that. You you, you can be loosed from things too. It's the same uh, in the church. When Christ is speaking about binding and loosing here, he's saying, and let's just receive this before we think about all the questions we have about how it can be abused and how unnatural it is for us to be under an authority like this. We usually think this is imposing, this is negative. It's not. But let's just receive it before we explain it. That the church has authority to bind and to loose. Now where does that come from? Why are they allowed to do this? It comes from Christ himself. It comes from him. For what is Christ for his church? He is a prophet and a priest, yes, but he is a king. And kings govern their kingdoms by law. And kings govern their kingdoms by delegating the authority of that law to other senators and representatives and ambassadors. If you live in a kingdom, the deal is, when you live in a kingdom... You have to live according to, to the nature and atmosphere and regulations of that king. Now on earth, that's a terrible thing sometimes because kings can be tyrants. It's never that way with Christ. There's nothing so beautiful and so glorious and liberating and fulfilling and transforming as beginning to live under the good law for the first time. To live under Christ is the greatest thing we'll ever do. That is the only thing that will ever actually satisfy us and make us happy. Your constitution says you have the, every person has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now those naturalists there that wrote that constitution, they're getting that from the general revelation of God. That's built into the creation. Yes, we are to pursue happiness, but we are to pursue happiness according to the constitution and laws of the land. And the founding fathers knew that happiness goes hand in hand with obedience to other things too. It's not like the freedom the devil has to do whatever he wants and destroy, but it's a freedom and a pursuit of happiness according to righteousness. Righteousness alone will make us happy. And it's Christ who governs that way. The church has, the church governors and elders have authority because Christ is a king. That's where it comes from. He had that authority as God, yes, but he was truly given it as our savior 
after he rose from the dead. When he paid for our sin, and he paid with a death, and he purged all of our sins on the cross, and he gave himself to that lostness and that death and that wrath of God, when he rose, he was rewarded a kingdom. And he told us about it. We read it in our call to worship. He said, after he rose, all authority on heaven and earth has now been given to me. Therefore, go and disciple the nations. See the change in Christ. Before his death, he spoke about who he was, but he wasn't exercising that authority at all. There's a definite change after he's raised from the dead and then exalted. He was given an authority over the world and the creation and the church when he rose from the dead. And we can, we can see that in uh, the Bible. For example, in John 20, um, when he's raised from the dead, he receives that authority and he speaks about it and he tells the apostles that he's going to transfer it to them. But let's take that for the moment, that Christ is king. That's obvious to a Christian. And if Christ is king, then that means that there is an authority we answer to. Now, we can say, I'm not going to obey anyone else. I'm a truly spiritual Christian. I'm not going to obey anyone in the church. I'm my own person. It's just between me and God. And I'll play along with what the church does now and again. But if it ever exercises any authority, I can refuse that at my own will if I want to. Because oh, I only answer to God. Well, Christ would be very unhappy if that's the state of your heart. Because he doesn't say, you, you answer to me. He says, I've set up a church and I've delegated authority to that church. So we can see that authority, friends, it's uh, clearly in the passages we read. For example, in Matthew 16, that we read when Christ asks them, who do you say I am? And he's promising them what will happen in the future. And he, he, sits, he speaks to Simon Peter, and he says to, them, to him, you are Peter, and on this rock, of the doctrine of, of your confession of me, on this truth of the gospel, the gospel rock, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. See the same saying. But he tells the apostles, I give you keys. Now these keys mean that these overseers have authority over the house of God. That's what the keys are. Now, obviously, there's a lot of confusion about this. And there's doctrine in the Roman church that says the Pope, the papacy, has the keys. Now, we can get into a long discussion about that and why that is wrong. That one man receives keys and what he says is infallible. For there are clearly twelve apostles here, and after this there are many elders. It is to be governed as, as a whole uh, by a group of officers. So that if one goes wrong, the others can correct. There is never to be one person governing above the other elders. But you'll see there that these elders, 
were given keys. For God has a house. And people have to be let into that house. And people have to be asked to leave that house at certain points. You have that. You're a father over your household and you have keys, don't you? And if you're a mother, you have keys too. And you don't just let anyone into your house to have access to your children. You lock the doors at night and you have keys for your house because you recognize that this is an evil world. And if you want to protect and govern properly the things in your house, then you have to have keys. These elders were given the keys to God's house. So if you want someone to come into that house, you need to go to Peter, Andrew, James, or John at this time and say, can they be allowed in? You can't let them in yourself. It has to be the elders that let them in. So you'll see the authority of the keys. I've already told you in our passage of the binding that that's an authority too. Now, the the message here is clear that Christ has the ultimate authority, but he has delegated the exercise of it to men. Not fully. Christ is doing a lot in the church. He is very active in the church. He doesn't set up the church and then leave it into the hands of men. Christ is very present in the church. The Holy Spirit is very present in the church. But he has delegated a certain authority to men. And we have to uh, recognize that. After this, when Christ was raised from the dead in John 20, he said he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's him transferring <coughs> authority to these men in John 20. Or is it John 21? So at the end of John's Gospel, he breathed on them. He, he literally stood with his disciples and he expirated and the Holy Spirit was transferred to them to give them the authority in a sense that he had in Acts chapter 2 that is sealed again you know the passage Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and 3 when they are praying in a room and they are praying for boldness and authority to go out and to Christianize the Roman world the Holy Spirit comes down upon them in uh, flaming tongues of fire in that form to speak with his authority, with purity and with fire. And it comes upon the twelve that are gathered there and they then have the authority to go out into Israel and to speak on Jesus' behalf. You see how he keeps getting transferred. He, he tells them you'll be given keys. He breathes on them. He pours his fire upon them. And then we see throughout the New Testament that Paul and Peter and the others, they went round establishing churches and they appointed an eldership in each of those churches. So that, that um, authority is transferred to the eldership. Because they're appointed by the apostles. Paul tells, tells Titus and Timothy, appoint elders in every city. Let the elders rule well. And he gives instructions for those who should not be elders and those who should be elders because they will govern. And he, Christ, through these men, spreads his church congregation by congregation and he establishes a local eldership in each church 
that's bound together in a central whole, in a, like a denomination, but it's governed locally by a group of elders, and he tells them to rule and to rule well. And that, that is pictured. If you want one final picture of that authority, Paul lays his hands on Timothy, and he lays his hands on others, and these elders then lay their hands on others. That happens in our church. When our elders are ordained, when our ministers are ordained, the session to ordain an elder lays their hands on that man. For a pastor, the presbytery lays their hands on that man. So that's happened to us. The hands were laid on us, and that's the presbytery saying, we now include you in, 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 this, in this body of shepherding and doctrine and authority. We include you here. We, we lay our hands on you to symbolize the transfer. Now, obviously, don't think that when we lay hands on each other that we have this great uh, power or there's something superstitious going on. It's just a picture. Nothing happens when you lay your hands on someone. Uh, we don't have, we're not apostles. The apostles are long gone. Elders don't do anything magical by laying hands. It's just a picture. They're telling the rest of the church, this, this man is now one of us, and he's included in the binding and the keys and these things. So there you have it, friends. If you look then at that list, you see how the Lord was given authority, and he began to transfer and spread that authority to establish his church throughout the earth. Now, what is that authority for? That authority is for the doctrine and life of the church. And that's what the reference is in verse 18. Whatever they bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and loose on earth. So the, the church, um, it makes authoritative statements about doctrine and life. That's what the church is for. The church says there is a trinity. The church says that Christ has a human and divine nature. Uh, the church says that we are to worship on the first day of the week and gather together, because all of that's clearly in the Bible. And because it's Christ's authority delegated by him, when the church speaks the word of Christ and says, you are to gather for worship every Lord's Day, then that, is, that statement is made with authority. It's, it's not up for discussion. You can ask questions about it. You can learn about it. But the elders don't sit down with the rest of the church and do a survey and say, when do you want to worship? The church says, this is when we worship. This is who God is. This is who Christ is. This is what Christianity is. This is what the Ten Commandments are and how they apply to your life. The church, in the name of Christ, speaks that. And it binds that upon us all for our good. On any doctrine or any area of life uh, that the Bible is clear and emphatic about. I'm going to say something in a couple of minutes about when there's an ambiguity or there's an area of uncertainty, what the church should do about that. But just take it in the main that a lot of the Bible is just clear. And all of these doctrines aren't up for discussion in terms of challenging them. We can't just reverse the role of men and women or, or uh, get rid of pastors 
and make every member of the church a preacher and things like that. that. That's not up for discussion because the Bible is clear on it. And if you join the church, you have to listen to what the church says on these things. The church uh, has that governing responsibility over doctrine and life. Now, that includes the issue that we're dealing with and that we're closing up today, which is church discipline. That includes the discipleship and discipline. Look at what Christ says um, about what the church uh, does in this area. He says in verse 17, If they don't hear the church, let him be to you like a Gentile and tax collector. That's Christ saying that if you're a member of a church of Christ, a true church of Christ, then you have come under uh, an authority, a governing authority that loves you and is concerned for you, uh, but must apply God's word to your life. And he's saying that if someone is living in such a way, not in accord with God's, God's will, and they refuse to correct it, then the church should treat them like they're a Gentile. In other words, they don't belong to Israel. And they have to be put outside of Israel. So the authority he gives the eldership here um, in this passage, it includes the issue of discipline. For these elders are shepherds. And they solemnly will give an answer to Christ for the shepherding of God's people. And if they just let sin take root and grow and spread and do nothing about it, these elders will be severely dealt with by God because they're not doing anything about what God has asked them to deal with. Now, to maybe just refresh this in your minds, And look at it from a slightly different point of view. Because it is difficult. We're looking here and we're talking about authority. And that people have authority over you. And when things go wrong. And that, that is difficult to think about and to hear. But I, w- I want you to think about this. That all the eldership is doing in this. Is what Christ has promised to do for his church. And you. By himself anyway. L- listen to what our catechism says about what Christ does for his church. Now listen to this carefully. This is question 45 of our catechism. How does Christ execute the office of king? So forget about me or our other elder for the moment. How does Christ execute the office of king? He executes the office of king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he will visibly govern them and he bestows saving grace upon his elect rewarding their obedience and correcting them from their sins and preserving and supporting them under all temptations and sufferings so this isn't I'm not coming to you here with a job description of the elders in this church because this is what we want to do Christ is doing this in your life anyway. That is an an interpretation of Scripture. There's a verse to back up every one of those statements in that catechism. And it is clear that the way Christ lovingly and graciously 
rules and holiness over us as a visible church is that he calls people out from the world into the church and once he has, they are under officers and laws and censures if necessary and he governs them, gives them grace and if they live obediently, he rewards that but if they fall into error, Christ says, I will correct them. So the eldership in your church doesn't want to correct you because it has something against you or because there's some kind of sadistic pleasure uh, that the eldership takes in correcting other people. It's done usually with a sick feeling in the stomach, with great reluctance, with great anxiety and sleeplessness. But it's done in the name of Christ because Christ does it. When we live in obedience to Christ, he rewards that. When we don't, he will correct that. So the the church's authority uh, in this governing is is over doctrine and life. And it includes a disciplined life. And it's the job of the shepherds and the elders and the pastor to care about the moral situation that each of its members are in and to be concerned for them because there's so many errors and dangers out there and if need be to speak to them about it. Before we close that point off and begin to bring things to a close, uh, there's another area I need to briefly speak about in regards uh, to this authority. Christ says in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. You know the words. And he says in verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And that's speaking about church government. Wherever these elders and apostles meet in his name and do it properly, in humility, according to God's word, with prayerful dependence upon him, he is there in the midst, and he says, it's in my name. And what I want to say to you is this. The church not only has the authority to teach God's word, but to apply it to my life and your life. And that's maybe very un-American in some ways. I don't know. Maybe you can speak to me about that after the service. But that, that jolts against all our natural inclinations. But it's not just to tell you, this is what the Bible says. If you then don't do what the Bible says, the church has the authority, not just to tell you this is what the Bible has said, but then to make sure you do it. And that is because they have bound something and loosed something. They have said, this is what the Word of God says. And when they meet for the solemn purpose, it is in my name. Christ says. Now, if you love Christ, just listen to him and don't listen to me. If you love Christ, listen to him. It goes against all our natural inclinations. Christ says, when they meet, my dear brother and sister, Christ says to you, who I've saved and who you want to follow me, well, you need to know that part of your Christianity is when they meet, it is in my name. And you must respect that. If they're meeting in my name, according to my word, then I've given them this task. I've given them my seal. Caesar stamps his seal on the scroll. 
and then someone goes to the city with the scroll and says, this is what you should do. And they say, who says? And he shows them the seal. He says, Caesar says. When the seal is on the scroll, the one who hands the scroll has the authority of Caesar. The church, friends, has the name of Christ. And the elders meet in the name of Christ. And as uncomfortable as it may be, when when the church lovingly comes to you, or me, and it has happened to me, I've had to have ministers correct me, and I have to receive that. When the church comes to us, because there's an area that needs put right, we can't get unreasonably defensive. We have to think this. They are doing this in the name of Christ. And whatever I think of them, and however I feel naturally I want to resist them, I have to understand that when they come in the name of Christ, I have to treat this as though it's Christ doing it himself. Why? Because it is Christ that's doing it. It is Christ. When he says, whatever you bind on earth, I will bind in heaven, Christ is saying that if the church correctly preaches the truth, and if the church correctly applies the word of God to the life of the membership, Christ is saying, when they do that, they're not doing that off their own bat. They are doing that because I am doing that. So if there's a clear instance of sin that someone is holding on to and refuses to listen to the church in pride and resistance and saying to the church, who do you think you are? What they need to see is that when the church rightly rebukes someone, you shouldn't view that as a human rebuke. It's not a human rebuke. It just isn't when it's in my name. When they bind on earth and Christ binds in heaven, Christ says to refuse that rebuke has nothing to do with these elders. It's refusing my rebuke. Remember what Jesus says a few chapters from now. We may see it in the next few weeks or months. Go out and preach to Israel, he tells the apostles. Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever refuses you, refuses me. Because they are the ambassadors of the Lord. So this is a unique way of looking at church government. This is not what's taught in all churches, obviously. There is this downgrading of the church. A downgrading of Uh, church authority, a downgrading of where our church came from, the Reformed and Presbyterian Revolution in Western Europe in the 1600s, where we established these things and put them into church law. That's all been downgraded. And the church is seen as a voluntary organization through which you can pick and choose who you listen to, You you can stand over your elders or your pastor and tell them This is how it ought to be done. Or this discipline is wrong. That's not the way I would have done it. That's what's happened in the church. And you end up with congregations, congregationalism, where if you have a good pastor and some good elders, it will go well. But if you have a bad pastor or some bad elders, it's stuck in that situation. There's no appeal. There's no general voice of the whole denomination that brings to bear on the membership. And I'm sure you've been in churches where they're they're doing these things genuinely with a love for Christ, with their understanding of church government. 
I'm not beating them down at all. But you see the problem. That there's this view of, I'm in this church, this pastor has made a mistake, or this elder has done this, and I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm going to go to a better church. We shouldn't do that in the RPCNA, because there shouldn't be a better church. We're all governed by the same law. We should never have to go to another church because of something like that. Um, that view of the ministry and eldership has been downgraded. And we, we have to just be careful that we're scriptural in this, my friends. Um, and that I'm pushing it away from me and the elders because it can only be accepted and submitted to lovingly because you love Christ. Don't do it for my sake, in a sense, but do it for Christ's sake. Christ has appointed these things and out of your love for him, though the men are imperfect, you should be willing. You should be willing to accept the fact that this is done in his name for according to his word. So there we have uh, the church's authority. And then... Um, The New Testament leaves us in no doubt about that. And I, you may be finding it difficult to root all this in your mind or accept all of this. Um, but I am just giving you God's word and you need to take it with you. This is what the Apostle says in Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you. And be submissive, for they watch for your souls as those who must give an account. Is there anything more terrifying than that? To give an account for other people's souls? To stand on the day of judgment and be asked, what did you do with all these souls, elder? Let them do so with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. It just causes discord. It's unprofitable. Obey those who rule over you. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls and let them do it with joy and not grief. Now just take that. Just put that into your system. Put that as part of how you understand this. Just slot it in. That is the word of Christ. Just take that. There is to be a, a kind of obedience that acknowledges that people have been appointed not to some organization, not, not to some group or a Bible study, but people have been appointed in all their weakness uh, and all their frailty and their incapacity to do such a great work, but they've been appointed to the kingdom of Christ. And I will never be able to do for you what John Calvin did for his congregation. It's not going to happen. I will fail. But think about the solemnity of the fact that I have to take seriously and so do the elders that we have been appointed to an eternal kingdom and we are responsible for the things that may happen in your life that will pull you away from the Lord. That is terrifying. And the principle is that if we come to you in love and concern, please just acknowledge that there is an authority there. It is there. And you have to lovingly acknowledge that. Now I've said that. Let me say this as we leave it. The church can be wrong. Pastors can get it very wrong. 
elders can get it wrong. They can teach wrong things. They can wrongly discipline. They can say things in good faith at the time that they think are necessary, and then in retrospect think, I, I mean, I, I probably should not have said that to that person. They can't read your mind. They don't know how you feel all of the time. You could be holding a great resentment or a hurt, a genuine hurt, that the elders don't even know about and that they didn't intend towards you at the same time. This has its frailty in it because the men God has chosen are fallen. He hasn't appointed angels uh, to rule over his church or to preach the gospel. It's men he's appointed under the man, the man who never fails, Christ Jesus. But the men will get it wrong. And we just acknowledge that. We just acknowledge that. And if it, if it is clearly wrong, scripturally, then this passage applies to the eldership. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him. If it's clearly wrong, not just if you don't like it or you prefer something else, but if it's wrong, if, if a minister or elder has sinned, we should be very forthcoming in acknowledging that and being reconciled to you. So I'm not standing here saying, obey without question. Of course not. That's a tyranny. You don't obey without question, but you obey according to the word of Christ. If what's being done with all its frailty and failure is being done out of a desire to honor the scriptures and for your good, even if there's a few mistakes in it, if they are doing it in honor of Christ for your good, please obey it. It can go very wrong, and uh, we acknowledge that. I'll say a final word to close this. We've had the church's discipline, the church's authority and where it comes from, and how it's to be carried out. Let me just close and leave you with a, a thought of Christ's grace on the church's promise, for he leaves a promise with us here that if any of you agree, verse 19, on anything on earth concerning what they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, and where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. The church has to correct sometimes. The church has authority, but the church has a beautiful promise that Christ will be involved in all of this. He's not an absent landlord. He is present, and he says that when the elders in their brokenness and their sinfulness, but in their repentant hearts and their constant dependence in prayer upon Christ, and out of a love and joy for him, when they meet for the good of the church and they love his word and they've got to open and they want to bring that word to pass, Christ says, I'm right there in the midst. The elders aren't left to themselves to figure out some plan or... or, or to come to come up with some very clever way of growing the church or anything like that, when when they meet, if it's done spiritually, they shouldn't be sitting there with their own minds coming up with whatever they think might be best. There's someone else at the session meeting. When he says, I'm there in your midst, he's talking about before my face. He, he's right there. We're meeting in his presence. He's there in the midst before the face of God, the face of of Christ. And he promises 
to help and to bless what is done according to his word. So that there's a lot of disagreement sometimes on sessions. It shouldn't be so, because we, we have the same Bible, and we're, we're too accepting of the fact, well, disagreements happen, but there shouldn't be a lot of disagreements really, because Christ says if any two of you agree on earth, the Father will do it in heaven. Because most of the word of God is to be agreed upon. Most of it's clear and we should agree because we read the same word. And we have the same Holy Spirit within us. And the promise is that Christ will be there. What a great promise. Not just for the pastor and elders, but for you. As you think about this and as you maybe look at things and think, well, that wasn't done right or... I don't like that that's good. Well, is your Savior in the meeting? It's not that you're not represented. Your Savior is in the meeting. Your Savior is at Presbytery. Your Savior is at Synod. Because wherever they gather, in His name, according to His will, He is there in the midst. Now, is that part of your thought process before you criticize everything that the Presbytery or Synod does? Are you a spiritual person? Or do you look at what men do and you carpet men like our society is doing? Just destroying men, pulling them down, discouraging them, telling them they're wrong about everything, just grieving them constantly. That's because you're not, you have no idea that Christ is supposed to be in that meeting. Now, if you had that in your mind and soul, then you would trust, you would be able to sleep easy at night knowing that a presbytery session means. Why? Because your king, your saviour, is there in the midst. And if you have a concern that you are praying about, is your saviour not able to hear that? You are not left to the mercy of men. It is Christ that is the king of the church. And he ought to be there. What a promise for you and a promise for us who have to do this. We are weak. We hate doing it sometimes. It is daunting and terrifying, and the responsibility is often crushing. But, what a promise for us. He is there. We are meet before His face. He is there in the midst. It's His government. And you are members of this kingdom. You are in this covenant. So, pray. Pray in Christ for this government and honor this government. May God bless uh, these thoughts upon his uh, word.